Story three of Elsie and the Child, a tale of Riceyman's Steps and Other Stories by Arnold Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Story three, The Paper Cap. One. Mr. Matthew Park, aged 42, bachelor, partner in a firm of bill brokers in the city, was waiting for a lady in the foyer of the Grand Babylon Hotel. His figure, features, expression, and clothes showed him to be a man of refinement. He aspired, indeed, to be fully civilized. He took the best out of life. He was prosperous because all firms of bill brokers in the city are prosperous, unless they do fantastic things or transact business with fantastic people, in which case they are liable to go bankrupt for sublime sums. Mr. Park's firm avoided all fantasies. Mr. Park, therefore, had much money, which he spent in civilizing himself. His beautiful flat was an illustration of all the arts, including literature, and he was always sincerely trying to improve his taste in every direction. He had an eye, a nose, an ear, and a palate. It was not sufficient for his ambition to know and to love the best in painting, music, and poetry. He knew and loved the best in curries, champagne, dancing, and neckties. He was a comprehensive connoisseur, and accepted as such. Being refined, he was sensitive. Being sensitive, he was not unreasonably fond of society, and he could be quite happy by himself. Being anxious to learn, he had an open mind. Hence, he was charitable with broad views. It followed that he was kind. His glance was even wistful and appealing, but sometimes, when the world was specially not revolving in the direction he desired, his dark, fine, moustached face and the curves of his still slim body would harden and observers become aware that he was capable of being drastic. It was New Year's Eve and the famous New Year's Eve dinner of the Grand Babylon, so prominently featured every December in the press by the hotel's ingenious publicity agent, was about to begin. Multitudes of correctly dressed persons surged in the foyer, a mob, in fact, and strong wooden barriers had been erected across the entrance to the two restaurants. Mr. Park, who had never before had the idea of dining at the Grand Babylon on New Year's Eve, was surprised at those barriers, and he did not like them a bit. He was not accustomed to being impeded by barriers, nor to the compulsion to show tickets at them in expensive hotels. He was accustomed to being waved and bowed and smiled into the halls of expensive hotels by the managers thereof. He did not like the mob, either. It was a vulgar, if a moneyed mob, and he failed to recognize a single soul in it. He, who in all fashionable resorts, had usually to greet acquaintances at every turn. He was indeed almost startled by the mere existence, in such vast numbers, of such vulgar persons as now surrounded him, particularly in view of the fact that the dinner cost three guineas a head, wine excluded. 
then at last he recognized a club friend marion a consummate idler fulfilling no useful function on earth one of those incomprehensible agreeable individuals who justify the squandering of an immense unearned income by the assertion that extravagance in luxury keeps money in circulation provides employment for the necessitous helps trade and thus contributes to the prosperity of the empire look here said marion you aren't forgetting you're booked for my yacht at monte carlo in february i'll show you corsica and so on mr park protested gratefully that he had the affair always in memory dining here to-night added mr park not much said marion with open scorn i've just looked in to pick up a fellow from new york this reply did nothing to comfort mr park's afflicted sensibility and the wealthy mob was not the worst of his distresses he could forgive the mob for being uncivilized but could he forgive the lady for being late of course nearly all women were nearly always late for their appointments with men they made excuses for themselves and you made excuses for them you pretended that it was only too good and too gracious of them to arrive at no matter what time you passed your life in inventing excuses for the lateness of women the phenomenon was received as the weather is received and yet why should so gross an error in deportment so crude a lapse from fine manners be overlooked in women there would be a devil of a scene if a man was late for a rendezvous with a woman mr park was a connoisseur above everything in deportment which he placed higher than art music letters eating and drinking and attire he gave indeed the very greatest importance to it he argued that if punctuality was the politeness of sovereigns and the woman was to be counted a queen the least the pretty creature could do was to be on time he wondered in his exasperated suspense why he should have invited this late lady to dine with him on new year's eve she attracted him but he knew not how nor by virtue of what quality in her her face, for example, had not engraved itself on his mind. He could not even recall the color of her eyes, nor the shape of her nose. He worked himself up into such a state that he feared he might not recognize her when she did come. Yet he had known her for months and months. Mere morbidity, of course. It was exhausting work to watch for her advent. There were two swing doors, and a continuous stream of men and hooded women flowed through each of them. Now and then he had to take his gaze from the doors and look around among the mob, lest she might have escaped him at the entrances. Moreover, he did not care to seem too interested in the doors. It would be humiliating to be set down by the mob as a man whom a woman dared to keep indefinitely waiting. Of course she would come in the end, they always did, but would she? his morbidity increased so that he could scarcely picture her pushing through the door it began to be inconceivable that she would ever appear she was carrying lateness to unparalleled excess the incoming streams had slackened the mob in front of the barriers was noticeably thinning well he gave her precisely another five minutes after which he would telephone and go calmly to his club at the end of the five minutes he decided that he might as well give her still another five if she came it would be his duty to leave no doubt in her mind as to the enormity of her offence 
he had the delicate unexceptionable poison-pointed words ready to lay her low who was she to play the prima donna and darling of mankind his mood grew terrible then through the swing doors he descried a woman arguing with a taxi driver it might be she because she had a passion for arguing with taxi drivers no no it could not possibly be she it was she smiling with happy ease am i late and not waiting for the elucidation of that particular point she continued to tell you the truth i wasn't sure whether you said eight fifteen or eight thirty she had arrived at eight fifty oh no he replied gaily gallantly miserable poltroon i've only just come myself to this masterpiece of mendacious politeness to this exquisite fineness of self-sacrifice she answered with a slight touch of dryness well then it's a good thing it took my maid such a long time to get a taxi isn't it he felt sorry for her a trifle nothing less than nothing hardly worthy of record but probably it was the origin of the supreme drastic decision which mr park made later two amelia juana was exceedingly well dressed and with the most careful attention to detail a blonde with chestnut hair she could successfully carry off pale blue which is disastrous to so many women her frock showed all the considerable daring which fashion enjoined it left little to the male fancy but over her shoulders was a merely transparent white mantilla which gave a slight exciting mystery to the perfect beauty of her skin the general effect of her frock mantilla and headgear was of something intensely and provocatively and restlessly alive gleaming shimmering darkling spying challenging seducing from the centre of a soft yet impregnable cocoon the mobile face with its norman eyebrows hazel eyes curved lips and admirable complexion had a flawless prettiness the finish of the hands alone implied hours of work not surprising that she should be a little late indeed she was very wonderful to behold and very complex to think about mr park was thoroughly satisfied with her appearance it did justice to him it showed respect for his taste and a complete ability to cope with his taste he noticed now and then a hard glint in her eyes an occasional uncompromisingness of tone in her voice and he noticed also a continuous and unshakable self-possession these things might have been defects in an ordinary woman but emilia juana was a concert singer accustomed to support the public gaze it was her singing of brahms that had first attracted him to her at any rate he thought so men of mr park's stamp preoccupied though they were with the arts seldom seek the company of public artists almost invariably they find that such artists are crude but mr park had been impressed by the brahms singing to such a depth that he had not avoided an opportunity of meeting emilia juana he knew scarcely anything about her except that her real name was understood to be birdsell and the look of her enlarged photograph on posters in bond street and the look of her name on the front page of the daily telegraph of a saturday morning of her domestic situation he was ignorant 
Her finances puzzled him. She did not get many engagements, and she often complained of the inadequacy of fees for both singing and teaching. Nevertheless, she must spend money somewhat freely. Mr. Park, as a man of business and a man highly civilized, could estimate the cost of perfection of detail. Still, her finances were not his affair. For him, she was simply a woman whom he had asked out to dinner, and she richly fulfilled the bill. No woman within sight could compare with her in appearance and physical style. So superior was she that the sensitive fellow hated her to be in such an environment. Two thousand persons were dining at the Grand Babylon that night. The tables were crowded together, and the waiters could hardly move between them. There was no elasticity in the service, no choice in the dishes, no friendly chat with a maître d'hôtel, no changing your mind, and it had been necessary to order the wines beforehand by post on a special form. The fact was that to serve a long dinner to two thousand persons involved elaborate and tyrannic organization and strict discipline for guests equally with waiters. On that night, the rawest provincial up in town for a few days was just as good as Mr. Park. The noise was terrific. Bands, tambourines, explosions, gabble, clatter. You could just hear yourself speak. The heat was oppressive, waiters were freely perspiring, and not too amiable. All over the restaurants, as far as the eye could reach, diners soon began to get rowdy. The management had provided clients with colored missiles, which they would throw violently at other clients to whom they had not been introduced. Women and girls joined in the rowdiness. Strange scenes. Disturbing scenes. The mere vulgarity shocked Mr. Park. And in the midst of the enormous vulgarity sat this work of art, Amelia Juana, this interpreter of Brahms. She ate heartily of the second-rate food. You cannot even at the Grand Babylon serve first-rate food to two thousand people simultaneously. But Mr. Park attached no importance to her appetite, being aware that women, as a sex, do not understand food. She drank of everything, but with restraint. Mr. Park engaged her in conversation about Brahms. She seemed to know and care nothing about Brahms' place in the history of music. Brahms was simply something for her to sing. She had seen scarcely any operas. The entire universe was an apparatus by means of which she, a concert singer, might rise to great fame and power. Though she threw Mr. Park a clever compliment from time to time, she really talked about herself alone. But with what charm and grace she did it, and what a marvelous spectacle she made for Mr. Park's eyes! More and more she gazed around at the environing spectacle. Could it be that she enjoyed the dreadful display and horrid cacophony? "'Well, how do you like it now you're here?' said Mr. Park at length. He put no critical disdain into his question, because it was she herself who had suggested that they should dine on New Year's Eve at the Grand Babylon. "'Oh, I love it! I adore it!' she answered in an ecstasy and she was sincere she did love it she did adore it mr park was nonplussed by the contradictions of human nature the din was now deafening the waiters had distributed rattles little harmonicas flails made of wood and paper balloons noses paper caps heaven knows what 
Amelia Juana started to throw colored balls at a man who had adopted a false nose. He was an appalling man. The people at his table were appalling. Further, he was tipsy. Sundry other guests were tipsy, and not all the tipsiness was confined to men. Do put a cap on, Amelia Juana urged Mr. Park. Suppose uh, we go and dance, suggested Mr. Park. To please me, Amelia Juana insisted with amazing arch persuasiveness. Suppose we go and dance, Mr. Park insisted. He could not conceive himself in a paper cap. They went to dance. The ballrooms were packed and noisier than the restaurants. Dresses were torn, eyes leered in the ballrooms. Amelia Juana greeted acquaintances. Mr. Park endeavored to dance. It could not be done. Only jostling could be achieved. And against what shoulders? Shoulders in black cloth and shoulders bare. Mr. Park, under heavy and varied fire, retreated with his partner to what looked to him like safety in a large smoking-room, where people were sitting at tables and recommencing the evening with fresh supplies of champagne. He procured a table and two chairs. A waiter carrying a huge tray of glasses slipped, and every glass was smashed in silvery cataracts of sound. Tumultuous applause! Ringing cheers! Then the lights grew dim. Some individuals jumped onto tables, holding champagne. The rest formed into circles, holding crossed hands and waiting. The lights flared up again. Tumultuous applause, ringing cheers. The new year was in. A singular and barbaric way of turning over a new leaf, thought Mr. Park. Amelia Juana gaily insisted on them entering a circle and joining crossed hands in singing Old Lang Syne. Mr. Park had never felt so self-conscious and absurd. He did not know where to look. Then the final drama occurred. As soon as they had sat down again, Amelia Juana picked from the floor an abandoned scarlet and blue paper cap and popped it onto Mr. Park's head. "'You've got to wear one anyway,' she said." in a sort of harsh ultimatum. Tumultuous applause, ringing cheers from the whole room. Mr. Park did not blench, he did not fail to smile, he did not snatch the cap off again. He maintained his politeness and his suaveness in their entirety. It was a prodigious feat of manners. But Mr. Park had come to a drastic decision. He had done with society, and for him Amelia Juana symbolized society. Bidding him good-bye at two a.m. at the entrance to her flat, she thanked him with unusual enthusiasm for a delightful evening. "'I've enjoyed myself frightfully,' she exclaimed, and then added, "'But I think you might have been more cheerful.' It was the crowning insult, for he was convinced that throughout the evening he had concealed his wounds and his humiliations and his horror with a smiling skill and a success unique in the annals of courtesy. 3. On quite a different kind of evening, at the end of the following July, Matthew Park was afloat in a small motor launch on the Boileur River, a mysterious stream with an antique village at one end of it, and the Solent and the Isle of Wight at the other. The Solent, at that period of the year, is the crowded haunt of the most expensive and the most luxurious yachts flying the British flag. 
but you follow a curving line of beacons put your helm over and in a moment as it seems you are shut out of the world and the river in which you suddenly find yourself might be an african creek whose bordering trees are the jungle the first shadows of twilight were gathering under the trees mr park's launch moved swiftly and almost silently over the opposing current he had been to visit the antique village and was now returning towards dinner no other craft moved on the stream no soul could be seen on the banks mr park was alone in a secret and withdrawn world save for the engineer and the steersman of the launch these were both fat taciturn men with perfect manners which mr park could well appreciate when addressed by him they replied in restrained voices and neither curtly nor loquaciously they had much respect for him and they had also self-respect they were mr park thought ideal in white across their blue jerseys they bore a name wanna and even thus labelled as surely no human beings ought to be labelled they could still be dignified at a bend of the river mr park saw the white sides of a yacht reflected in the quiet water at her stern the blue ensign waved idly the launch came alongside the yacht whose life-boys bore the name juana mr park stepped on to the gangway of the yacht climbed the stairs and was greeted as his feet touched the yacht's decks by two officers who raised their peaked caps to him lovely evening sir lovely a steward appeared from below took mr park's mackintosh and disappeared shall you want the launch any more to-night sir no thanks the next moment the launch was being hauled up to her davits mr park paced the deck in ecstatic content wherever his gaze fell it fell on beauty he had entered into his kingdom and his kingdom satisfied him nay more its felicity far exceeded his hopes it was the holiday in marion's yacht at monte carlo which had at once confirmed matthew park in his decision to cut himself off from all the antipathetic and exasperating ugliness of the world and shown him how best to carry the decision into effect marion's yacht owing mainly to bad weather had never quitted monte carlo during mr park's stay the hideousness and the costly idiocy of social life at monte carlo had struck mr park as never before he had seen the place in a new light it was the very mirror and a microcosm of all that offended his refined tastes and a yacht while well, the best instrument for enjoying what the mass of knowing people called life was obviously also the best instrument for eschewing it a yacht was a thing of grace elegance and style further it was a complete home and it travelled when you travelled in a yacht you had not to pack up to catch trains to sleep or lie awake in strange beds to suffer under strange cookery and incompetent unfamiliar servants who exploited you you travelled with your own cook your own bed your own servants your house your books your everything you retreated with the entire apparatus of comfort and luxury the drawbacks were seasickness high cost and the necessity of absence from the centre of affairs none of these drawbacks affected mr park waves did not incommode him he had ample money and his situation was such 
that he could and did leave his business to the care of others without abandoning any of the profits he bought a schooner yacht and sardonically rechristened her juana in order that he might be continually reminded of past foolishness she was a ship of a hundred and ninety tons about the length of two cricket pitches and twenty feet abeam she had twin screws twin bathrooms she made her own electricity she had every new convenience she was fast under sail she was as beautiful as a bird to behold from without and within was decorated according to the dictates of Mr. Park's full connoisseurship. At eight o'clock precisely, a bell rang, and Mr. Park went into the large deck-house, which he used as a dining-room, and sat down and was served by two attentive stewards clad in blue and gold. What an agreeable change from the everlasting evening dress of butlers, maitre d'hôtel, and waiters! The food was English and plain, but sound and well-cooked. All I can say is, sir, the cook had said to him, after listening to his praise of the breakfast bacon, you have the best there is. The dinner, potato soup, fried plaice without sauce, two cutlets with French beans, a souffle, and curried eggs. Merely perfect. Mr. Park propped a weekly review of advanced opinions against the flower vase and read as he ate. He chose the periodical because it was well written and also because its opinions coincided with his own. Now and then he offered a remark to one or other of the stewards, who responded, smiling discreetly if he had been jocular, with just the same admixture of respect and self-respect as Mr. Park had enjoyed in the launch. Mr. Park greatly admired his men, and the captain had informed him that they were very happy together. After dinner, Mr. Park strolled about the deck in the dusk, illumined by one electric light enclosed within a genuine Chinese lantern. At the forward end of the ship, he could discern several men smoking their pipes and conversing in quiet tones. The night chills of a characteristic English summer suggested to him that he should go below, and he went without being driven, because he never tired of inspecting his buoyant and movable home. He turned on all the lights and walked from room to room, and gazed at the decorations and the small pictures set everywhere in the panelling. There were three spare bedrooms in the yacht, only one spare bedroom in his flat. He had no intention of using them all, but at intervals he would invite one or two carefully selected men to cruise with him for short periods. He was content in solitude. At last he subsided onto the couch in the library, a small compartment with only a few hundred books. But what books? He took down a volume of Balzac and having suitably arranged the lamp over his head, set himself to enjoy the most human and most grandiose of all novelists. Pinned on to the curtain which screened the door was a curious scarlet and blue paper object. The steward supposed it to be a mascot, and liked Mr. Park the more for being a bit superstitious. They could not divine that it was the cap in which Mr. Park had begun the new year at the Grand Babylon Hotel, or that Mr. Park had displayed it permanently for a warning to himself, as he had named the ship. He read the Balzac, but with an imperfect interest. The fact is, he was too happy to read. 
he preferred to reflect upon the exquisite success of his scheme for avoiding the friction of contact with an uncivilized world he was severed from the world for as long as he chose nobody could get at him unless he chose there was no telephone there was no post unless he cared to send for it there were no disturbing women he was safe every sense was gratified and no sensibility hurt and on the morrow with two propellers capable of driving the ship at eight and a half knots he could defy winds and go where he liked also he could stay indefinitely in the soft quietude of the boileau river then his sensitive ear caught sounds which he could not credit for a moment he thought that he must be the victim of a delusion or that there must be something the matter with his hearing but he was soon convinced that his hearing was quite normal and that he was the victim of no delusion the sounds were the sounds of a music-hall song played on a cheap gramophone and sung by several raucous voices with an unsatisfactory notion of tonality the refrain of the song was if it was for the houses in between mr park sprang from the couch if he had been capable of turning as pale as death he would surely have turned as pale as death such was his horror such was his resentment the sounds were the work of his beloved crew amusing themselves in their fashion after the day's work and supper it seemed impossible that his beloved crew so well-mannered so skilful at their jobs so accustomed to beautiful surroundings and a bracing life so respectful and so self-respecting could commit such an enormity but it was not impossible mr park listened in agony the song ended and was followed by another with the burden could do with a bit could do with the bit which was followed by a fox-trot mr park had no objection to a good fox-trot and he admitted always that there were many fine tunes among fox-trots but the crew's taste in fox-trots was dreadful he hurriedly got on to a chair and shut down the skylight but the sounds could not be excluded they penetrated and filled the entire ship he ran on deck not a soul was on deck all hands were enjoying the concert a gleam of light came from the forecastle hatch and with the gleam a rushing geyser of awful noise mr park went into the deck-house no surcease in a ship whose length is only equal to two cricket pitches you cannot escape from any phenomenon of sound whose origin is on board mr park trembled he strode to the bell-push almost beside himself and was just about to ring furiously when his advanced social opinions which as is usual in human nature did not at all agree with his tastes leaped forward and stayed his hand he reflected there are fourteen human beings in the forecastle it occupies less than a third of the ship more than two-thirds of the ship is given up to my luxuriousness the fourteen human beings start work at six thirty a m they finish when i have done with them which may be midnight they toil for my pleasure they are decent men they are polite men they are experts if i go to sea i entrust my life to them they eat in the forecastle and twelve of them sleep in the forecastle which is no bigger than my deck-house in rows in tiers one above another who am i to forbid their simple pleasures and to impose my taste on theirs 
he simply could not ring the bell had he rung it he would have lost his self-respect he sat down all his sensitiveness subjected to the most appalling torture he put his hand to his forehead his forehead was damp this is hell he murmured bitterly hell hell the rosy future which he had planned for himself lay shattered at his feet after half an hour which was half a century the concert terminated the men were laughing heartily mr park rang the bell bring me liqueur brandy will you he said to the steward shall you require my services any more to-night sir asked the steward when he had poured out the brandy no thanks that'll be all thank you sir the captain wished me to ask whether you had any objection to the crew's gramophone sir not the slightest answered mr park nobly oh thank you sir good night sir good night mr park slowly drank the brandy gazing through the brass protected windows at the calmness of the water and the mystery of the jungle he was a changeable man a few moments earlier he had been ejaculating hell hell he now ejaculated a great heaven but in precisely the same accents of utter despair four emerging at last from the deck-house to go to bed he paused on the cabin stairs as a faint and distant sound caught his attention the clock under the flag-locker solemnly and implacably ticking its way through time into eternity showed eleven fifteen the barograph revolving its drum more slowly than the motion of the moon showed thirty point five degrees and rising the sound increased matthew park returned on deck he could descry on the stream far off in the direction of the solent a pale object approaching at a tremendous speed the object soon became a white launch one of your modern launches which do not resemble boats and which look seriously out of place in the davits of a yacht but which accomplish eighteen or twenty miles an hour in smooth water mr park had an incredible premonition that launch is coming to me that launch is marion's launch he knew that the sardonyx marion's yacht was lying in coe's road but yachtsmen are not in the habit of paying distant visits to one another on the verge of midnight now he could see clearly the gleam of the two sides of the furrow which the launch cut in the flatness of the river it was all most mysterious even thrilling now he could see the forms of women in the launch he could hear laughter he heard a triumphant voice i told you he wouldn't have turned in he's standing by the gangway and louder lower your gangway old man the voice of marion himself and mr park regretted did he really regret that he had not gone to bed earlier he began to loose the rope that held aloft the foot of the gangway the launch slackened speed its thrumming diminished and ceased two sailors held it with their hands against the gangway i'm sure you're perfectly delighted to see us old man marion called looking upwards here's amelia as soon as she knew you were here she insisted on coming to see her yacht instantly so i've brought the party i should think so indeed mr park heard the voice of amelia juana fancy naming a yacht after me and never telling me 
it is an extraordinary fact that this aspect of the yacht's baptism had never presented itself to matthew park who indeed had been completely absorbed in his own psychology he wanted to cry out that he had not named the yacht after emilia juana and that juana was a very common name in spain and he had chosen it solely for its beautiful sound he could not cry this out in the night invaded by these madcap visitors nor could he either inform emilia juana that he had used her name for a warning to himself nor was he even quite sure that this explanation of the baptism was wholly correct in a minute or two the visitors consisting of a dark jewish woman and her husband emilia and marian had enthusiastically taken possession of the yacht and it was alight with electricity for inspection from stern to the forecastle bulkhead the crew had given no sign of wakening do show me your library again said amelia enchantingly and he took her down leaving the other three in the deck-house with biscuits and liquids as soon as they were alone together in the confined space of the little library amelia threw off the heavy white coat in which she had arrived and matthew park had the ordeal of the vision of her in a glowing evening frock you know she said in a peculiar challenging tone and gazing at him with a peculiar gaze you're really rather queer am i responded mr park weakly he spoke weakly because of a sudden realization that he had been queer and because of a sudden realization of the absurdity of attempting to cut himself off from the world he perceived that this particular planet on which he happened to exist was unalterably what it was and that he must accept it in its totality that no man was big enough to defy it and repudiate it that in brief his business was to take the rough with the smooth and adapt himself to the planet instead of sulking because the planet would not adapt itself to him he perceived further that though the rough might be rough the smooth could be very smooth amelia in all her artificiality and egotism and caprice was a marvellous creature in the tiny brilliant room he sank back to the couch amelia perhaps somewhat constrained cast a glance round the walls well she exclaimed in a most disturbing dissolving voice you're even queerer than i thought imagine you keeping that she had seen the paper cap pinned on the curtain it had escaped her before you're the bafflingest man i ever met but you're a dear and very astonishingly to mr park she bent down and pecked his cheek with her lovely lips their eyes met close for the fraction of a second it was revealed to mr park more clearly than ever that this planet is not a planet to despise come along come along murmured amelia urgently with a laugh like a whisper we must go back or they'll wonder what on earth we're doing and she fled glancing over her shoulder bring my cloak end of story three